You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Emswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honored to be joined by Krishna Singh Khalsa from the Sikh community in Española. Krishna Singh, welcome. Thank you very much, Rabbi Neil. It's great having you here. Sikhism is probably one of the newer world religions that's visited our show. So why don't we simply start by asking, what is Sikhism? That's a wonderful question. And I have to start by actually asking or offering a slight correction to the question because uh, the Sikh Dharma is not a religion. It's a Dharma. And uh, just to try to put a quick distinction on that, what that means, the, the word religion comes from a Latin word, relegare, which really means in some ways remembering or going back to or regaining an earlier state of whether it's call it the Garden of Eden or some other perfect state which humanity was at some time in and we've fallen or lost grace or whatever has happened. So, And also religion is largely based upon creed or belief. And so religions are generally a belief system. Mm -hmm. Uh, A dharma, on the other hand, and you can closely compare it to the Buddha dharma, for Mm -hmm. example, is that it's about how you live. It's the practice. It's the action. It's the way you live. And a part of that way of living is, of course, you're taught precepts by a, a, a qualified teacher And you might believe them for a period of time in order to get into the practice, but it's up to the practice itself to allow you to have the experience that that belief becomes inner knowledge. And so uh, it's about going to the future. It's not about the past. It's a different orientation. Uh, Our our dharma is uh, registered uh, with the United States government and the state of New Mexico as a religious organization because that's the category that they had that would allow us to receive the same privileges as a religion does, such as tax exemption and right. other things like that. So we, it's called a religion, and I, I, I would not fault perhaps millions of Sikhs <laughs> for practicing it as if it were a religion because right. there's certainly a part about education and um, – the Sikh tradition, which was founded in, in 1469 with mm-hmm. the birth of Guru Nanak, has been through many uh, apocalyptic Holocaust-type experiences. And we had 10 founding gurus, mm-hmm. and then the tradition of the guruship was passed to the city Guru Granth Sahib, which is a sacred text which we don't call it a book. It is actually a living guru, which we bring to life whenever we gather before it and chant and sing the Shabbats in Kirtan with it. So it becomes the the core of a living tradition through music and and chanting and meditation. So uh, we had 10 gurus and each one of them was perfectly enlightened, and the texts in the Guru Granth Sahib were all written by these enlightened beings, plus a number of Muslim and Hindu 
predecessors who lived in an earlier time that they regarded as on the same wavelength, the same level. And so their writings are also included with the same authoritative uh, reality as the gurus themselves. So this is fascinating for me to, to learn. I, I think I should start almost in defense of religion, almost. <laughs> okay. um, in this, I, I, as a rabbi, I don't feel that Judaism, at least my Judaism, is looking back necessarily. And certainly all religions may have an origin story, but many are also eschatological, will look forward to a vision of a perfect humanity. Of course. Um, and so it's interesting for me when you're describing the Dharma as a way to live, because in my tradition, that's halakha, um, which is the law, but actually means the way you walk, the way you go. And, I and, understand. And so it's interesting to hear moving away from that perspective of belief. And, and yet you said something which sounded to me like a belief. You said that there were these um, perfectly enlightened gurus. Uh-huh. Is that not a belief in, in their infallibility? Well, it's not if you practice the practices and, and discover as you evolve in those practices that they've never been wrong and that their, their, uh, their vision and their teachings are of such a high level that they actually lead us to enlightenment because the whole point of the Dharma is for enlightenment. Uh, the word that is in the very first... Um, uh, statement that Nanak made upon his rather dramatic experience of enlightenment uh, when he was relatively young. Uh, the word, he, he started by expressing what we call the Mul Mantra, and then there were 39 poetries or sutras that followed that that are called Japji Sahib. And one of the key words at the very end of the Mul Mantra is Saibong, which means self-enlightening. And so enlightenment really is the purpose of the Dharma. And right after that, he says, Guru Prashad, which means the wisdom will give you the capacity to fulfill this. It has always been so. It is so in the very beginning. It's true now, and it will forever be true. I'm intrigued by this idea of enlightenment. Um, as a as something to attain or a state of becoming, how does one ultimately become enlightened in your tradition? For all beings, it is by realizing the enlightenment that's already inside of us. So, what does that mean? I mean, it's extraordinary. I've heard a little. T- mm-hmm. Tell tell me more what that means. Well, for example, I've, I also, because I find such a parallel path in Tibetan Buddhism that okay. I have studied deeply with Tibetan high teachers and with a lama in, Tibet, in uh, Eugene, Oregon for now 24 years. And when, if this left hand is the Khalsa way, the Sikh way, mm-hmm. and this right hand is the Tibetan way, and I put them together at the deepest level as I drill down, I can't see any difference. We actually, the the ultimate teachings are really the same, although our methods differ, partially because the Tibetan tradition founded much earlier is both a yogic tradition and a monastic tradition, whereas um, Nanak wanted to bring the same level of capacity for enlightenment to the householders. And this is one reason why it started only 500 years ago, because literacy was not common. I mean, it was forbidden for Europeans who were not clergy or a part of the 
court of the nobility to even read or own books until approximately the time of the Renaissance. And then you had Gutenberg who developed printing, and then you had Lutherans that started printing Bibles in their own language, which was heresy at that time, and they had to deal with the consequences of that. But um, you could not have a householder religion of the stature of of an Enlightenment process without written text. And that's why it's interesting that we our tradition came from the oral songs, which Nanak wrote and then were recorded and then written in a text. And now we bring them back into orality, into spoken language by singing them. So it's the circle of, of the inspiration that first came to a written recording of the accuracy of what was said and then reuni- reigniting it in our worship. So, so what does this mean? the enlightenment within ourselves because I'm sure there are a lot of people worldwide who don't feel enlightenment within themselves. No, of course they don't because they don't know it's there. That's the process of enlightenment. And I love the Buddhist uh, perspective, especially the Tibetan perspective, which is that all sentient beings are Buddhas, but they're not Buddhists. Mm-hmm. In other words, they don't have a practice, and most sentient beings don't even have the wherewithal and otherwise a human brain and all the faculties of a human at the higher level, which, um, which would allow them to engage in a meditative process in order to have realizations. It's really – enlightenment is about realizing that you've been, always been enlightened, And the problem is that when we live in a physical body in this natural universe, we have to – we're born with an ego to protect us. You know, at age of one and a half or one year old and you touch a hot stove, Mm -hmm. you know immediately that was not a good thing to do. And so you build that into your egoistic vocabulary that there are certain things that you shouldn't do and certain things that you should and we become Mm self-protective. This is perfectly fine. But the ego itself is like a myopic tunnel vision which blocks out because the ego is basically self-ish, whereas Mm -hmm. enlightenment is selfless. And so it's a huge process to go through the transformation of going from having an ego, and we're not talking about destroying or killing the ego or getting away from it, but rather taming it. And so it becomes like a horse that we can ride with all of its strengths, but it's not riding us. The horse isn't on our shoulders. We're on the horse's back. It's interesting. There's a similarity to one particular saying in my tradition, Mm -hmm. and and I like to share the similarities, um, which is um, we have this concept of the Yetzirah Tov and the Yetzirah Hara, the good inclination, and what's translated as the evil inclination, but there's actually much more on our base instinct Mm -hmm. inclination. Mm -hmm. Animals have the Yetzirah Hara, whereas Mm -hmm. um, they don't have a Yetzirah Tov, they don't have choice and so on. And so this this Yetzirah Hara is often denigrated. Well, we try to get rid of this evil inclination but there's a, an important quotation that says, were it not for the Yetzirah, were it not for this inclination, we wouldn't get married, we wouldn't you know, build houses, we wouldn't take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. so it's something that, that needs to be part of us but just not in control of us. Exactly. I agree completely with that. And it's um, something just occurred to me when you were saying that. Uh, the, the animal has the, the, the seeds – 
of what becomes fully in blossom in the human. And, and what, these seeds are in our tradition, and especially uh, even though these things are briefly mentioned in the Guru Granth Sahib, they're not a part of the traditional practice uh, of the the mass of Sikhs, but we practice kundalini yoga. Mm -hmm. And Yogi Bhajan was a master of kundalini yoga from the age of 16. And uh, when you read, when you see the Guru Granth Sahib and the teachings of the Gurus from the lens of kundalini yoga, it's a complete shift. And according to this, again, the human is composed of 10 what we call subtle bodies, Okay. And they're quite similar in certain respects to the seven chakras that have become worldly, worldly known uh, since right. the 60s when we hippies needed some kind of a roadmap to right. saying, what's going on when we have these crazy experiences? And we learned about the chakras. Well, the, pro the problem is that the teaching about seven chakras was comes from the Hindu tradition and the Brahmin tradition, mm -hmm. and the Brahmins are the top caste of a billion people. A very few people are mm -hmm. in control of the knowledge. And they know about Kundalini Yoga, and they know that there's more than seven chakras, but it, it was forbidden to teach these things to anybody but a Brahmin. And the Sikhs have always been against the Brahmin system. Right the caste system. And so the Buddha was born into a Brahmin family. His father was a king. And at the age of seven, the Brahmin boy is taken to a priest and a ritual happens and he's given a thread which indicates he's now um, an authorized male Brahmin. Where, and he refused. He says, I don't like this differentiation and better than worse than or elitism. Right. Nanak was the same story. And the Sikhs have always been about dissolving the castes and creating equality among all beings. See, I, that's a wonderful place for us to pause because I want to, I, I want to really explore once we come back from our break about what that means, equality in all beings, because yes. that's definitely a question that comes to me from hearing what you're saying. So we're going to take a pause. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom with my guest this evening, Krishna Singh. You're back listening to KSFR, uh, Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom, my guest this evening, Chris, uh, Krishna Singh from Española. We were talking before uh, about the equality of all beings, and you, you said that um, the animals have the seeds which can be fully emblossomed in the human. And I, my question that comes from there is very much about, is the human the perfect form? It sounds to me like what you're saying is that, that perfection, that, that, that all sentient beings can, can, can be perfected through the human being. Is that right? Well, it's close. I mean, that's generally right, but I think I need to clarify it a little bit. Otherwise, it's going to sound maybe outlandish or silly. Um, the perfect being is the perfect human. Ah. The design came in the research I've been doing uh, with the Mayan calendar who are were also on the same path. Uh, the... Yogi Bhajan once said that no matter what you read in the entire Guru Granth Sahib, the ancient Mayan people knew it by heart. 
And and he's talking about Mayans who were alive long, long before what the anthropologists call the classic era of, you know, that finished in about eight or 900 AD. This Mayan calendar, the Mayan master that I studied with for 23 years who passed in 2016 said, of course, the Mayans have 17 calendars, but if I go to the calendar that is most likely. Yogi Bhajan also said that the Mayan calendar was absolutely correct. And so the calendar that I've learned about the most is one that completed itself in 2011, interestingly. And the natural universe, the creation of the natural universe goes back 16.4 16.4 billion years. Now, I know you're an astrophysicist, right. and you're going to say, well, the Big Bang happened later than that. However, we weren't born on the same day we were conceived. And so it's my belief that okay. the birth of the universe, we could call it a bang or a whatever we want to call it, but it was actually conceived in the cosmic mind between what we call would call the cosmic mother, uh, what Plato called the uh, material substrate, who is absolutely formless in relation to the absolute one, both of which are completely beyond perception by any finite mind. However, as Plato said, and Plato had it right on, Uh and his student Aristotle dismissed it to the demise of metaphysics in Western civilization. Because what Plato was actually describing is exactly the way one might describe Ohm, only Nanak went further than that because the the ek, which is the one, and the om, om the, the female in which the absolute one is reflected, she gives birth to form. And this is exactly what Plato said as right. well. So ek onkar is the very first three syllables that Nanak said as he reemerged after disappearing for three days in his enlightened state. And then he recited the Japji Sahib. So, so these are the first documents that we have. So now Plato said now the so forms are emanated by the uh, cosmic materialism, mata, mother, you know, material and mother are the same word, really. And so she gave birth to the forms. And again, as I am working with this research, not in a, an academically philosophical way, what form would she emit first? My, my personal perspective is she, admitted, she created or emanated the form of a perfect human, which is a Buddha or a Christ or a Satguru or whatever. It's the perfect humanity that she emanated. And then what I get from this calendar that goes back 16.4 billion years is another 14 stages beyond those nine stages that actually mathematically goes back to about eight-something octillion years. (laughs) Totally beyond our imagination. (laughs) But let me ask – I'm – and there's so much here. <laughs> right. I know, um, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Don't be sorry. <laughs> exactly the opposite. For me, I, I, I'm challenged by the anthropocentrism of this. Well, I'm challenged yeah. by the sense of, well, firstly, the idea that there is such a thing as a perfect human being because – I didn't say that. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, or the perfect human form. There's a design for oh, a perfect okay. human being. But then, but then those who don't have that physical design – 
seem to be immediately locked out from perfection in some sense, don't they? Well, actually, what Nanak said was at the time, and he was maybe speaking in very round numbers, that there are 8.4 million species of living beings, what Buddhists would call sentient beings. And from the very simplest uh, one-celled beings all the way up to the most sophisticated, which we've proven by our ability to destroy things beyond any other species capability, mm-hmm. the human, that we have a huge uh, sophistication in our capacities. But see, that perfection is not what we think of because we're, if we talk about the human as f- something that has form – right. We're missing the point okay. because equal to, as Nanak said, ek ong kar, ong is the formless and kar is form. And he's saying that form and formless are inseparably one. And so if you have anything with form, there is a vast amount of formlessness you as a quantum physicist would <laughs> know. There's a huge space between all of the particles. See, my – you mentioned about the sophistication of human beings, which is shown in our destructive um, ability. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's a good thing in the sense I, I'm, I, as I hear you talking, I'm, I'm thinking about the ant. And I'm thinking the ant is in some sense a much more perfect being than a human by virtue of the fact of its its cooperation, its self-sacrifice. Ants will happily, or as, as much as they get happiness, um, sacrifice themselves for the greater good. As much, will many humans. As will some humans. Well, many, but, some. But, but, yeah. but it's not instinctively necessarily hard, hardwired in us. There's a, a community, an ant is a part of a community in a much more powerful way for me than human beings who often need guidance into community. An ant almost births, is born into, um, into selflessness. I totally agree. I totally so, agree. So then why isn't the initial form ant as opposed to human? Well, let's go back to the Buddhists for a moment. One thing they say about all sentient beings, included ants or even flies that are totally irritating when they get in our face in the summertime, they say that every sentient being has in some lifetime or another been our mother. And we have to respect and care for them because they cared for us as we were born and being initiated into being a living being of whatever species we were, from an ant to a fly to a possum to a crow or an eagle or whatever, a fish. Mm -hmm. And so they require that we create, we regard every species, every instance of a sentient being with the same respect that we would our own mother. So Buddhism is a radical shift in selflessness. Now, the point is that if the he, Nanak also said that in addition to there being 8.4 million species, and I don't know how he calculated that, he also said that each of us, as we have become human, have lived through 8.4 million lifetimes, and so we can begin to see that as we regain, as we gain more sophisticated physical structures and psychic structures and brain structures and mental structures up to becoming human, the primates, for example, as a threshold species, that that the universe itself is a university. And we go through all of these levels. And in the 
period of time is that they're all in some way also ego-driven means we're acting in some ways blindly and then we get into the uh, predator species and we start killing other beings for our uh, livelihood, we're creating karma. And karma is a negative action that harms nature or the possibility of the species or a specific individual member of a species. Mm-hmm. And we have to pay for that. It's a negative karma. It's, we're, we've caused a cause. Every cause has an equal and opposite reaction. And if we cause a cause, we have to come around in the future, either in this lifetime or probably a future one, because we've created a debt. It's like the, uh, the little chip on my so on my uh, credit card that carries a memory of who I am and all these transactions. We don't even have to sign anymore because it's got that. So the soul is like that entity which carries the memory of all of our past karmas that says we have a debt. We, have, we can't just become enlightened and stay out of this, this uh, cycle of incarnation because we owe it and so we have to come back and – also, with karma comes suffering. Right. No, but but my, my question, and we've only got a couple of minutes left, so uh. I, I have to pick <laughs> carefully. My question, I think, is, um, is isn't some suffering inevitable um, by virtue of our society, by virtue of being? Absolutely. And when you, but when you're saying, talking about the credit card, when I die, that, that account is closed. Mm. Um, but your belief is that it's not closed, that it continues. I, I struggle with the idea that, uh, you know, in Judaism, we say we don't pass the sins of the parents down to the children. This seems like almost the sins of previous lives being carried through. When, when I'm born and I'm brought into the world, how can I be responsible for that which came before when I you know, when I wasn't there. Because you are. Because you're going toward enlightenment. You see, it, suffering causes a crisis. And actually, crisis is the seed of evolution. And one of the greatest evolutionary moments comes when one turns from karma, which is selfishness, to dharma, which is selflessness. And this is, and when you make this transition, I could tell you a story about the fifth guru and the fact that he sat on a red-hot plate of iron for five days and five nights with a smile because he didn't suffer. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Because if, okay. if you've created karma, you, must, you will have suffering. But if you're doing – and where there's dharma, there's no karma. Where there's karma, there's no dharma. If, you've, if you graduate into this set of dharma, then you won't suffer. You will feel pain. But it's, ah, it's, there's a okay. bliss in it. There's a bliss in the pain. Yeah. Right. Because when you were, when you were saying you – know, sitting on this iron plate for five days – I'm thinking you're talking about a miracle, aren't you? But no. but no, what you're saying is there is suffering, but you can accept that suffering. The reason he did it when he was asked telepathically by the highest uh, wazir in the Muslim Mughal tradition who was the advisor to the emperor, why are you doing this? He says, so if any of my Sikhs are ever caught in a similar situation, they'll know how to respond. So he expected us all to achieve the level at some right. point of doing exactly what he did. 
This has been just fascinating. And, and I really hope that you can come back to our show again so that we can explore more. I have many more questions um, to ask. So, so thank you. It's a promise. Uh, definitely. Thank you. <laughs> um, so um, uh, my guest this evening has been Krishna Singh Khalsa from the Sikh community in Española. Um, and as I say, I genuinely hope that you come back and we can explore more about Dharma and karma and, and particularly exploring. I want to, us to look at what that means for, for the mother, for the creation mother. Absolutely. I think that's going to be a very interesting discussion. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>